Well, hello, hello, ladies and gents. Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Max Minster on the line, a.k.a. Keto Chef Max. We dive into all things keto and cooking. Max is also a type 1 diabetic, so we dive into how he was able to kind of manipulate his meals, become a chef, and stay keto while not negatively impacting his type 1 diabetes. So pretty interesting stuff for sure. We, 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 we talked about a lot of different ways to cook some food, so... This is going to make you hungry. Just letting you know on the forend. Hope you enjoy. Sit back, relax, enjoy. Max Mincer. And Max, we're live. How are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, man. It's good to have you back on. We uh, we recorded once already, and that audio did not work out. So anybody... Obviously, y'all are not going to hear that episode, but uh, this one's going to be even better. We got it. We got some practice rounds in. Yeah, we got our first practice round, and now the second one's going to be much better. Absolutely. So, Max, give us a little background on you, man. We talked a little bit about how you were type one diabetic and got into cooking, uh, specifically with keto. But give me and the and the audience a little insight into what brought you into this space and how you've now become known as Keto Chef Mac. So uh, growing up, you know, I was always diabetic. I basically was diagnosed when I was one years old. They thought I was born with it. And, you know, my mom took care of me that whole time. And I had to learn later in life how to do it myself. Obviously, I got to, you know, take some responsibility for myself. Uh, So what I did is as I was progressing through all this and growing up and like learning about fitness and health, um, I went through a lot of different uh, varieties of diets. So I hit intermittent fasting, some carb cycling. I did pretty much anything and everything you could do except for keto because I was actually scared about ketones being that I was a diabetic and didn't want to go into DKA. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I uh, went and got some blood tests done, uh, I found that I was highly allergic to yeast. So, I mean... That's pretty much all the carbs in the world that you would want to ever eat gone. And so I took the, what I had there and I was like, all right, like my only option really is to either go keto or just like a, a low carb diet. And so I entered the keto area um, to really help out with some of the issues that were going on with me and uh, just basically uh, enjoy life a little bit more with it. I uh, was cooking a lot of creative foods in that day too, like when I was trying to do my meal preps. And I wanted to apply that to the keto space because, you know, I always find that sometimes when you get recipes online, uh, you don't find like real things. It could be somebody just wrote a recipe and maybe took a, like a fake photo of it, plastered it on there. Or, you know, like when you make the, the dish, it, it might be the same ingredients, but it looks nothing like the picture. And so that always irked me a little bit. And I wanted to be able to present like an honest representation of what you could do for keto food and what you could eat. And uh, I think that's kind of what drives me to continue to do the Keto Chef Max stuff is um, that innate passion for uh, pushing the boundaries of what keto food can be. I love it. I love it. Quick question on that. Why is it that no recipe picture ever looks like it does in real person. I mean, even with like things that aren't recipes, like you pull up to a drive through on a, you know, Wendy's or McDonald's and that burger looks just amazing. Then you actually order yeah. it and get it. And it looks like, like it just got ran over or something. What's up with that? Yeah. So, you know, there's a thing called food styling out there and that's, uh, 
what people are doing and actually there's they like they fake it is basically what they do like i know from one area is like when people are trying to do ice cream pictures and they take it out the scoop they'll use mashed potatoes instead of ice cream because obviously if you were trying to photo shoot with ice cream it would just melt uh so they have all these little tricks and things that they do like if you see like a bowl of pasta and it looks like that thing's really full they probably only put a little bit of pasta on top and had a bowl underneath it to prop it up. Or uh, they take oil and they spray oil on it to make it seem like it's uh, fresh. Um, or even water to make sure that like lettuce looks like it's uh, crispy and uh, delicious and what you want to eat, you know? Um, and I feel like a lot of other times people will edit photos too uh, to make the food look better than what it really it could ever be, you know? Uh, so, and another area of that too is um, when you're pumping out like at McDonald's all those burgers, you know, there's no way that you could ever uh, continue to make that same kind of style and have it look like that every single time uh, unless you're a robot, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. It is crazy though, man. I mean, like, I never thought of people... Well, I guess people put filters on like people. Everybody takes pictures of the food nowadays. That's the thing to do. So they'll put like a filter on there that yeah. makes it look a little bit more sharp and contrasty. But it's crazy because you got people getting called out for Photoshop and you know abs and everything. And you got people photoshopping their food pictures, make it look more juicy. It's just yeah. an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, and uh, I mean, like I know some other tricks and stuff in that uh, that people use, and I can actually like now that I've been in this space for about a year and a half is. I can pick up on that and I can see that I can I know like they either filtered it with something or the the color is not really what it is or something's not going to come out the way it looks or, or taste what it looks like you know that's a good point it's a good point it never looks as it never is as good as it looks it's always a little deceiving um I, I want to dive into the to the the type 1 diabetic piece a little bit man because I feel like that needs to be highlighted for sure so you're one year old so basically it's all you've ever known you haven't known anything else um, have you, now that you're like super conscious of the foods you're eating, you're in the keto space, have you noticed certain foods having, you know, a, a significant impact on your, your baseline blood glucose and insulin levels? Cause I'm assuming you're probably testing. So what are some foods that people would not think would have as much of an impact and are considered, you know, keto friendly, so to speak, but actually have had an impact? Um, so I think one of the biggest things that people won't realize that affects your blood sugar is going to be your protein and um, fiber. So a lot of people will be like, oh, net carbs are where it's at. And it's like, well, net carbs are where it's at if you want to eat more carbs. Mm -hmm. And that's how I kind of view that because when I'm a diabetic, I don't produce insulin. So my body doesn't, you know, uh, respond to the same ways that somebody with uh, an insulin secreting pancreas does, you know. And so... Uh, when you eat fiber, though, like you got to understand that half of that gram of fiber is going to be digested. So if you eat 20 grams of fiber, you're going to have 10 grams of total carbs that you're still going to be uh, digesting, and that's going to affect your blood sugars. Um, and so another thing with protein is, um, you know, I have noticed that when I have a huge influxation of protein, I... Um, will kind of bounce up a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if that has to do with uh, 
the like protein synthesis in the body and all that stuff, but it's it's kind of an interesting concept on that, you know. Yeah, I feel like that's especially the the whole net carbs versus total carbs thing. I feel like you know, as a type one diabetic, you're super in tune with how that has a profound impact on your on your levels, much more so than some that's 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 not a diabetic would be. And yeah, you you got to get frustrated, man. Like all these foods out there that are marketing themselves as being keto friendly, but it's all just a bunch of crazy math, man. Like they'll have all these total carbs in there, but then on the on the uh, the label it'll say you know one net carb, two net carbs, but it's like all these crazy tr- subtraction equations, and it's like you know you can't think for a second yeah. that that doesn't have an impact. You know, there's there's no- nothing in life is free. Like all of that has an impact one way or another. Yeah, and so that's actually kind of a cool topic is like the nutrition label. When somebody's trying to figure out what's in there, you know, they do figure out the net carbs. And they're like, oh, this has one net carb. It's great. You know, that's a great way to market something. But um, if you go and you look at the total carbs first and then you can read down, you can see the sugars, the fiber, the sugar alcohols nowadays. Um, those are some of the things that you should focus on. Whereas like fiber, yeah, you could subtract uh, what you need from that, from your total carbs, and then you have to understand that um, the sweeteners that are involved or the sugar alcohols that are in some of these foods, they don't really account for the total carbs. Like, I've only had um, effects from monk fruit, where it actually spiked my blood sugar one time, mm-hmm. and, uh, like, erythritol, um, you know, stevia, you know, allulose, they're all really good for your blood sugar and they're stable um they're all just different types of uh, sweeteners that you get from a different process and they're so low glycemic that they don't even affect uh your blood sugars and they actually don't even get absorbed by your body sometimes and so you just pee all that stuff out yeah it's it's interesting like some and a lot of them uh like sucralose for instance it's not really it's like an incomplete sugar molecule so it's not really ever absorbed by the body so it may not even cause yeah. that much of an increase in your blood glucose, but it still has an impact in the fact that it oftentimes causes you to retain more fluid. So like a lot of people will be sucking down a bunch of sucralose and they'll notice that their weight starts increasing and it's, it's oftentimes just water yeah. retention, but it's not really an accurate measure uh, of what your current body composition is. like. So I, I like to just keep all those to a minimum. The only ones I personally ever really use are like the monk fruits and the stevia. I feel like that's the most natural and probably has the least adverse effects. Yeah, and then uh, you know another one that's kind of coming up is allulose, and I don't know the entire process off of it, but it's a, a more natural one than uh, the other sugar alcohols that are out there um, because it's from like dates, maple syrup, like it's a, a molecule that's found within those things that don't affect the blood sugar. Yeah, the one thing I'd be curious on with some of these is it's it's oftentimes like the low glycemic load is not going to have a measurable impact on blood glucose, but just simply having the, the sweetness on your tongue is going to send a signal to your brain to start excreting insulin. Not so much for you being type 1 diabetic, but I'm, I'm curious to see like yeah. in a normal individual, you know, if there would be a way to, to measure uh serum insulin levels based off just having the sweetness alone yeah that would be a really cool study for somebody to do um that's a unique concept so talk talk to me a little bit about the the introduction into keto man you, you mentioned that that you you were allergic to uh yeast you said right yeah 
So what right, was, so, uh, yeah, how, how did that come to be like, how did you even find out about keto and what was that progress like? So I previously had heard about it and like, this was probably like three years ago before I started and was, I, and like, I kind of just pushed it off to the side, right? Cause I was like, oh, it's a fad diet and, um, you know, I'm not going to ever be able to do it because there's ketones involved with it. And, uh, it didn't get down until when I was doing that blood work that I uh, got into this and was really digging deep and researching it. And that's where I found out, like, you know, DKA is eight minimals to 25 minimals. And, you know, nutritional ketosis is the 0.5 all the way up to, you know, six or eight. And that's the cancer area right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, with that, like, I was like, okay, like, let's try this out. Let's, you know, be very uh, active about testing my ketones and see how these foods are acting in my body and um, what it's doing to my ketone levels, being that I'm diabetic. You know, that's really, really crucial. But I found that, like, I have the hardest time uh, even getting past, like, a, a six. You know, like, I've rarely ever hit that. And I think there's only been two times that I've recorded that and that was like after eating a, a, a lot of fat. It was like a Thanksgiving keto <laughs> thing that we did, and I just I was like six point two, and I definitely felt that though. I was like, oh, my stomach's a little upset, but uh, it, it was just interesting, like uh, for me to see that like different change from like food and then actually DKA. You know, uh, a lot of people are scared of having that nutritional ketosis be compared to the DKA and that's something that I was worried too but I just dived into that and went for it and um I I I never looked back you know it is interesting man like you look at all the the information maybe not so much now that keto's grown in popularity but you know rewind a couple years ago and anything that had the word diabetics and keto in the same sentence it was all just regarding ketoacidosis there was no talk whatsoever to you know, the ketogenic diet and using that as a way to help stabilize, you know, blood glucose levels. I mean, it was all about just ketoacidosis. So like any doctor, any doctor now, like they still, they 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 think of ketoacidosis and, and diabetics in the same sentence instead of keto. I think, I feel like we're starting to make headway, but it's just been pounded in everybody's head for so many years that you can't really be a diabetic and follow a ketogenic diet or else you're going to you know, die, yeah. which couldn't be uh, from the I mean, truth. some of the stuff that you got to uh, watch out, though, for is if your blood sugars are unstable um, and they bounce around a lot, you're likely to go into DKA. So you need to have better control of your sugars or even get onto the CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitor. And uh, what that is going to do is going to give you a bunch of evidence of what your fluctuations are and have you get better control, drop your A1C. And when you get your A1C lower, you have a lower risk um, for developing uh, your like arteries aren't going to harden, you know. So no calcification is going to happen when you have a lower A1C. When you have a higher A1C, that can kind of start to happen, and that's what people don't realize is they're like, oh, like, you know, I'm worried about the plaque buildup, but it's not the plaque; it's the it's the calcification that you're you should be worried about. Yeah, for sure. Are you using a, a- continuous glucose monitor now yes so that's pretty much constant running is it like a specific one is i've been curious to get one 
but I've, I've been worried about it like falling off while I'm training. So I don't know if there's like a good, you know, public oh, use. So this is a good conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I work out, but I am incredibly active. I work in a kitchen. Uh, and so I'm sweating hard. I'm moving a lot and just basically going uh, balls to the wall the whole time, you know. And I've had uh, no problem with it, actually, like that I would say like, oh, God, oh, no, you know. I did lose it actually recently. It, it fell off at work uh, when I was bumped into and I didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, dang. Uh, but I have had it kind of get loose um, while I'm working out. Uh, I usually, There's different areas you can put it in. Like I put it on my tricep. Mm-hmm. And you put it on your stomach. I don't really like that because you know, I'm always bending down or squatting or doing something like that. And so that's an easier way for it to come out. But, um, you know, they have uh, these things that you can put over the top of them that make them uh, stay put. So, you know, that's a good opportunity to use something like that. What uh, what brand are you using? Which one are you using? So I'm on Medtronic. Um, it's I, I believe it's like one of the best on the market right now. Um, and the cool thing about it is they got this thing called auto mode. So on the auto mode, uh, what this is, is uh, before we had this thing that's called a basal. And it's your uh, insulin in your pump that's pushed out into your body throughout the entire day to keep your blood sugar stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what a basal is. And um, I used to have to enter that manually uh, and have it adjust throughout the day uh, manually. And now that I'm on the pump in the CGM with the auto mode, um, it picks up my information from when it's being transferred to my pump for my blood sugar levels and it um, reacts to what my blood sugar is so I don't have to do any of that anymore. Wow, so you got like pretty much your entire life back. It's like you're not even diabetic anymore. Yeah, pretty much. And then they have this uh, new insulin that's actually coming out that I was almost a part of a study for. Uh, I think it was called a Pedra or something like that. I can't remember. But um, it's a fast-acting insulin, and I have a fast-acting insulin, but um, it takes about 30 minutes for it to kick in in my body and get a reaction. Mm-hmm. And this one apparently has almost an immediate reaction, so like one to five-minute reaction. So when you dose up, you won't have to wait to eat uh, to be able to have that, you know? Oh, wow, that's, that's nice and convenient. How many units are you taking yeah, right. currently? All right, so this is cool. So before keto, right, I took in 100 units a day or more, wow. which is insane. Yeah, and I noticed my weight changed a lot due to that if, like, I was eating more carbs or, uh, you know, dropping the carbs and taking in less insulin, like, my weight would change dramatically throughout all that. Then I get in keto – I have a much more stable weight because I'm taking in 30 units a day now, which is insane. And um, I think that's something that's really uh, valuable to point out because, you know, my weight uh, before this was not great and it fluctuated. And then I got on keto and I'm able to maintain my weight because you're not pushing so much of that insulin growth hormone into your body. I imagine like your A1C is improved. I mean, probably all of your metrics. Yeah, my, my A1C was like a 9.3 before, and I got it down to a 7.1, and it's probably still dropping. 
have you noticed like I'm, I'm curious I, I don't know that much about supplementing with insulin from a muscle building standpoint but a lot of the pro bodybuilders that are taking gear they'll they'll take insulin because it is a growth agent it's an extreme growth agent everything grows muscle grows cancer cell grows uh, fat tissue grows have you noticed any uh, uh, like adverse effects from a muscle building standpoint in taking less insulin um adverse no like i'm actually i don't know if i'm like genetically superior i wouldn't really say that but i have been able to maintain a lot of my muscle and i haven't really been working out as much as i used to um and I, I just, like, with this, like, lower insulin, I feel like I can build more muscle, actually. And it's, uh, but I think that's maybe just because, like, you lose the fat that you have and yeah. you can see it more. And then, uh, you know, I don't know if that's something that could be studied more on or uh, I think it's just, like, kind of a uh, I feel it out kind of a thing, you know? That makes sense. I mean, heck, you were looking jacked when I saw you at the neck competition a couple weeks back. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. You bet. So you are bet. you. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, so let's dive into the cooking, man. This this is where you're really going to shine, and I'm curious to see what what you're doing there because, you know, a lot of people that are keto obviously have kind of had to totally change their, their nutritional regime and switch out, yeah. you know, all the carb-based foods for the fat and the proteins. But as a type 1 diabetic, I would imagine you're – your parameters are even more strict with regard to what you can use for ingredients, what your cooking techniques are like, like kind of dive into that. Like, first of all, what even got you into cooking? Like, why did you, why do you like cooking foods? Cause a lot of people hate cooking foods. Yeah. So, uh, growing up, right. Um, my mom used to only have, uh, like five main meals. Right. And this is what she would cook throughout the month. Uh, like, every week, you know, and I was just, I was getting so sick and tired of it. Much love to my mom though, you know, so, Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, so I started kind of like getting into the kitchen myself to be able to make my own thing and I was just loving it. And so, you know, I would make extravagant meals and I'm sure that didn't help my blood sugars very much, but like I would do some pretty cool stuff. I loved making breakfast foods at the time and, uh, even came up with like my own pancake recipes and all that kind of stuff. And I was just having a blast with it. And, you know, I went off and I did all the, you know, uh, dieting and the working out. And I tried to apply some of that stuff to it. And then um, I went and I was touring for music. And, you know, there's not really a whole big opportunity for stuff like that. And uh, so once my music career was over because I hurt my hand, um, I had to reconsider what I was going to do. And my parents came to me like, they're like, Hey, like we'll pay for your schooling if you want to go somewhere and finish something up. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> like, yeah, I won't, I won't say no to that, you know? And so I go and I tell them I want to do cooking and they get mad because they're like, Oh, it's a career change, you know? And so I was like, no, like, this is something that I think uh, was really important to me and I would do really well in. And so I went out to um, Austin, Texas and went to the school, August Escoffier School of Culinary Arts. And uh, I picked that school because they had, it was a trade school. You went there for 10 months and you just worked a lot. You know, you just, it was basically having a job in the morning. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, we did that for those 10 months and I, I just fell in love with it. And I went out and I, uh, sorry, I got a job and then I had to come back to Colorado and, um, I went to the Broadmoor, which is a five star, five diamond resort where I learned all of my like really important tasks and skills and techniques, uh, for cooking. Um, that was like kind of the thing that spearheaded everything for me and really put me into, uh, like the professional that I am now. Um, and so with all these new like skill sets, I'm able to apply it in a lot of different ways. Uh, like when I meal prep, I think ahead of like, you know, what's a big piece of meat that I could cook and have some really tasty stuff for and be able to make a variety of meals with it throughout the week uh, and things like that, you know. Um, and I think... Uh, applying that to all this stuff is really important. I like it, man. I feel like, actually, one quick question. What what instrument did you play with your music career? Uh, drums. Drums? And how long were you doing that for? Yeah. Oh, man. So I started when I was eight years old, and I played all the way up until I was 22, 23. That's crazy, man. I feel like I've had several different chefs on the podcast, and I feel like 70% of them at least started out in some kind of musical endeavor and then switched over to cooking. So there must be some kind of correlation there for something. I don't know. Yeah. The correlation is like music doesn't pay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. So yeah, I want to dive into some of these techniques, man, because I feel like a lot of people are shy to get into cooking because they feel like there's just no, I don't know. It's just like overwhelming. It kind of bombards them. Like they, they walk into a kitchen and they don't know where to start. And I am not a good yeah. teacher with this because I am very much so like minimalist when it comes to things. Like I don't want to take any time to make it look pretty. I don't, I don't do anything fancy. Like when we had the keto savage kitchen, you know, series on our YouTube channel and I just like half the time it tastes terrible, but we, we just do it because it's fun and I, I like making a fool of myself, but I don't, I don't consider myself a chef yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. So what are some, some good solid techniques that anybody listening to this podcast can take and, and walk to the kitchen with confidence and be able to walk out with something that actually tastes good? Well, one thing I want to talk about is research. You know, mo majority of the time when I'm trying to look for what I'm trying to do or anything, I, I look things up and I put a lot of effort into what I'm trying to do and learn about. Uh, then, like, as far as, like, technique-based, you know, get good with, a, a, like, a saute pan. You know, searing is going to be a friend of yours. Grilling is going to be a friend for you. Uh, and also... If you're looking for something that's a little bit more uh, less involved for a better food quality, is going to be braising. Um, I would say braising or roasting are going to be uh, your best choices that you can do. I mean, like I feel like you could set that stuff and forget about it, and then come back to it and it'd be ready to go. Um, you know, like for braising, for instance, braising and roasting are very similar, except for braising you have a liquid that's in the bottom of the pan with your meat. Uh, to help kind of like steam the thing or like cover and coat it as you go through. Uh, whereas roasting, you have it open and it's giving that nice bark on top of it. And you're developing like a crust on the outside with that. Um, and both of them can come out super tender. Uh, you just got to know when to pull those out when they're ready. And, you know, the easiest way is to be like, if you have a bone and say a pork butt, can you pull that bone out of the pork butt and that's where you're like oh okay it's ready it's done you know uh 
if you can't pull that thing out, then it's, it needs more time. You know, um, if something doesn't peel away or pull pull off the meat or pull off the bone, it's not ready. It needs more time. You know, um, and then on that searing note, you know, uh, just experience is going to get you to be a little bit better with stuff like that. You know, a lot of people saute their vegetables. And they overcrowd the pan, so really you get this like soggy, no color mess. And when you're supposed to saute something, you want a ripping hot pan and enough room so that there's gonna not be steam being made, and you're gonna develop that color and caramelization on whatever you're cooking on there. Um, and I think those are like three of the biggest ones that I would really focus on in the kitchen because those are the most prominent in somebody's house, you know. Speaking of sautéing, does like a caramelized sautéed onion have very much of an impact on your blood glucose? I would assume it probably would, but is it like a like enough so for you to stay away from it? Yeah, uh, I don't stay away from onions, but I do know that they raise blood sugar, obviously, because they have carbs in them. Uh, and so in moderation, I think that's where I like to go with like a lot of this stuff is like I don't really uh, just disassociate myself with certain types of foods. I just, I'm like, hey, like, I can have a little bit of this today or something. And because I want to be able to eat whatever I want and not be confined to, like, oh, it's an onion. I can't have onions anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, and when you caramelize something, uh, I don't know if it's going to change the nutritional profile. Um, it would make sense that it did because you're bringing out the sugars and you're caramelizing it. But uh, in the same sense, it's, it's still an onion. It's just you basically caramelize the sugars that are present within the onion. And so I don't think a nutritional impact would have anything big on that. Sometimes people do add sugar actually into that to help the caramelization process, but you don't need that. Yeah, I would imagine, I mean, it tastes sweeter after it's been caramelized, but I would feel like the actual sugar content, I mean, I may be totally off base here, but I would assume that it would actually be lessened because you're burning off some of that sugar. Yeah, um, so uh, one thing to realize is when you have carbs, uh, carbs ignite in the fire, right? So when you say you burn something, right, like you want to burn a peanut, right? There's oils in there too, but there's also carbs in a peanut. And so that will become like charcoal, and that charcoal is still going to have carbs in it. Uh, right. It's used up its calories that are within the food, but, um, you know, it's still a carb. And that's the thing that you got to kind of realize with something like that. That makes sense. Back to the braising, man. I I used to kind of be uh, just whatever with regard to braising, but now I'm a huge believer in it because it's a, it's a game changer for certain types of foods that are otherwise not really palatable, for lack of a better word. I mean, classic example is I obviously hunt a lot. I'm a big hunter. And the shank portion of deer is pretty much unedible in most cases. I mean, it's just totally chock full of sinew and tendons and tissues that you can't really chew. It just becomes a mess if you're trying to, you know, grind it up. This past, uh, actually with the mule deer I killed this year, we we made asobuco out of it and we braised it and that was the most delicious cut of deer. I mean, I, I would put it up against like backstrap and backstrap and tenderloin is like the, the gold standard for quality tasting deer meat. But that asobuco was delicious. That's crazy that you made some deer osobuco. We do osobuco in our restaurant here in Austin, actually. 
Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's got to be like one of the crowd favorites, man. I mean, like you can't really get that kind of texture and flavor profile from anything else. Yeah, so um, braising is a really cool technique that everybody should employ in their cooking. Um, you know, for me, when I try to think about that kind of thing, is like, okay, you need to sear off your meat really hard everywhere uh, and do what's called the Maillard reaction, which is just caramelizing the outside. And you're trying to, what they think they say and know is seal the juices on the inside from getting out. But that's not really the case anymore. Um, but you still want to develop that flavor on that meat with that sear. And then you take that out of your pan, and in the same pan that you sear that off, you're going to saute the vegetables that you uh, are going to be braising with and get some color on those as well. And then you deglaze the pan with whatever kind of wine or acid that you're using or any kind of liquid, really. And then after that, you'll uh, put in the stock and put your meat back in and uh, reduce a little bit of that liquid and bring it up to a boil. A lot of people don't realize that um, like when you put your liquid in there, you need to bring that stuff back up to a boil before you put it in your oven because it will never come to a boil in the right temperature that you need to uh, if you just put it into your oven without bringing it back up to a boil. And then you cover it and you can put it back into your oven for whatever time you need. What is your preferred sauce uh, when you're doing that? Because like I think... If I remember correctly, when we did that deer, we, you know, we, we cut the shanks into, you know, couple inch sections. We tied it off so that the, the meat would stay on the bone while it was cooking. We seared it in like yep. an olive oil, uh, you know, with olive oil and salt basically. And then we added some kind of, I'm not sure what all was in there. I have to go back and look at the recipe, but it was a tomato base, uh, predominantly tomato base. So that had some of the acid in there to deglaze the pan naturally. But is it like a particular sauce that you tend to gravitate to when you're doing osobuco? Uh, so the best one uh, and the most common one that you actually do is you can take whatever is um, remaining in your liquid from the braise and make that into a sauce. So you can put all of the ingredients that were inside of there and push that through a food mill and you'll have a sauce and it's absolutely delicious. Gotcha, gotcha. We've got uh, deer camp coming up next week and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cook osobuco for everybody that's there because... Like me before, they they just assumed that you couldn't even eat that part of the meat. But I'm gonna I'm gonna rock their world with this recipe. It's 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 the only way to go, man. I I can't I can't stress how tasty it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oso buco is probably one of my favorite dishes. What about organ meats? Like, what are some? Do do you eat a lot of organ meats or no? No. Uh, it's interesting. Like, I feel like I'd have to go out and try it out with somebody else and just experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had liver before and I'm not really a big fan of turkey or chicken liver. Uh, maybe I just didn't have the right uh, person cooking it. Um, but I've had like, uh, like, uh, oh God, what is that? Uh, the compressed meat, not spam, but um, like. Oh, potted meat. Cheese head. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So I had that, uh, and um, I love that. Like that's something that's kind of cool. I mean, even though that's not really organ meats, you can add different parts of the animal into that. Um, a lot of people like to put uh, ears and the tail from like a pig in there mm-hmm. and give it a little texture and crunch. Uh, but yeah, I mean, on organs, I think it'd be kind of an. I've never tried it 
and I'm, I'm down to do it. I feel like there's some lots of opportunity there, man. Like liver, there's probably some really good ways to eat liver. Uh, a lot of people just pan seared or whatever, but I'm not sold on any particular liver recipe. I'm open to suggestions there. So I'm, I'm asking you to learn how to cook liver so that you can impart that knowledge upon me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> heart, I feel like heart is a, is a good solid organ meat to experiment with. I mean, you can like grill a heart or pan sear heart, and it, it usually turns out pretty good. Tongue is surprising. Yeah. Man. Have you ever had tongue? Yeah, tongue. Tongue is. Oh, that's that's another one. I have had tongue. So uh, this this one's cool, right? So when you when you get tongue, you have to peel the outside of it off. Mm-hmm. So you basically blanch it in boiling water to release it from the skin, and then you take that outer uh, skin layer off. But then you have to braise it because it is a very tough piece of meat. But when you braise it and or like roast it, it gets incredibly tender. Yeah, tongue, I don't know, man, like, I had beef tongue, and then I had that deer tongue, and deer tongue was, like, just a million times smaller than the beef tongue, but when I cut into it on both both species, it's, like, just so so much more tender than you would imagine. You have to kind of, like like you said, yeah. roll it and braise it and make sure it's all good to go, but when when it is prepared properly, it's just surprisingly tender, and the, and the, the texture's good, the the flavor is good, the consistency is good, and that's that's just a piece of meat that most people never look twice at because it kind of weirds them out. It's like they're making out with a cow, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, and you know what's really cool is in Mexican food, a lot of taco places will have uh, lingua tacos, yeah, lingua tongue tacos, and it's like it's probably my go-to when I go to a taco shop is I gotta try it, you know. And honestly, like when they do it like that and they shred it. You know, it's kind of, it's got the exact same look and texture to, like, shredded beef. So, I mean, I, I feel like the, you know, a non-known person would be able to eat it and not tell a difference, hardly. Yeah, that's where you, like, bring your friend out and you uh, tell him, we're going to go get some shredded beef tacos. And you, you're like, hey, you just ate tongue. And he's like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good, though. I don't know what the nutrient density of tongue is compared to, like, other muscle tissue, but... I mean, it tastes good, so I, I'll definitely continue eating it. Um, what, yeah, what, about, then, uh, what about testicles? Do you ever eat any testicles? Really like to, did you say testicles? Yeah, yeah, that's like a big thing, especially in Mexican dishes. I just got back from Cancun, so I mean, they had all kinds of weird weird dishes, but testicles. Uh, did you try it? <laughs> I, I've tried everything, man. I, I've tried everything. I'm, I'm totally open to eating just about whatever, uh, but it's actually pretty good yeah, as well. Yeah, so Rocky Mountain oysters are pretty popular back home in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> Man, Rocky Mountain oysters are, are pretty good. The only thing is most places fry them. So, like, I can't really get battered and fried anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have to prepare that in-house. So, I don't know. It's tasty. Oh, there's also. Go ahead. Yeah, it's really tasty, uh, like, when you fry it. <laughs> But I don't know about eating testicles as tasty or not, you know. I had a it's kind of funny story. I had my uh, my buddy in college is is Thai, um, and he eats. I mean, you eat all kinds of different things, and you're from Asian communities. Like they they eat everything, which is good. That's respectable. I like that. And he had a, a he went home for the Christmas holidays or something, and he came back and he had like this massive sack of of meat. And I was in college. So I was broke and have a whole lot of options um so i asked him hey man what is that you're not gonna eat it i'll I'll totally eat it and it was turkey testicles and these turkey testicles are like the exact same size as human testicles 
and I'm, I'm looking at these and I'm like trying to think how am I going to prepare these turkey testicles and I wind up just you know doing like an egg wash and, and sticking them in the, in the skillet and doing like a pan sear with them and it's, it's kind of a weird texture I mean you bite into them and it's like creamy which sounds kind of weird I mean you're eating a testicle and it's a creamy texture but I tell you man those are pretty <laughs> delicious too <laughs> Uh, yeah, the other one I, I can't get my head around is, is sweetbreads, right? So that's like the lymph node from a cow I have uh, not had that, that they um, grow, you know? And so, oh, God, like, I tried them in culinary school, and we basically just dredge them in a little bit of flour, shook it off, you know, for to get a light, uh, crispy coating on the outside and just pan-seared it. And we made this like lemon caper sauce to go with them, and I thought they were absolutely disgusting. Uh, the texture was just off-putting to me, and the flavor wasn't even there. So it's a is it is it like a it like just the lymph nodes? That's what you're eating, like pan-seared lymph nodes, or is it like put into a bread or something like that? Oh, it's it's just pan-seared. Pan-seared nodes, huh? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I can get behind that. Don't yeah, know about that. That that one's pretty weird. What about brain? Would you ever eat brain? Yeah, I could totally eat brain. Kidneys I'm kind of half and half with because kidneys, it's like, it just tastes a little bit like urine. Like, not that I'm eating a bunch of urine stuff, but, but kidneys, I mean, you get that same <laughs> smell and taste. I mean, it's like not not good, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's interesting. They tell me, though, if you, if you really want to eat kidneys and enjoy it, the main thing is you just got to cook the piss out of it. <laughs> But I don't know. <laughs> good fun right there. Um, I think I'm mostly just stick to the the good old muscle meats on most most cases. I like all the organ meats, but some of them are just a little bit too far of a stretch for my liking. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'd rather stick to something that I don't have to go searching in like an Oriental or Asian market for. You know. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, sauces? I feel like a lot of times I'll interview a chef on here, and they'll they'll gravitate mostly to the sauces as it relates to culinary geniuses they they like to have that kind of as the base because if you can make a good sauce you can pretty much make anything taste good yeah so um a lot of times people use accompanying sauces to kind of help out with the flavor of something or just make something taste better or add a unique characteristic to it and like there's a lot of things you can do there's a lot of butter sauces like a molton burr is basically you just saute up some uh, like fragrant veggies and uh, like I would say tomato, uh, garlic, maybe a little onion and then throw in parsley at the end and then you're going to uh, emulsify a little bit of butter inside the pan and it creates this really delicious buttery rich like almost kind of French sauce and that's something somebody could do at their house really quick and fast but um, butter sauces are really easy to make um, they just take a little practice and then also, um, you know, I, I'm recently getting into a lot of uh, fresher sauces. So say like um, more Mexican inspired or like almost a salsa or like something that you can chop up in a mortar and pestle and just make it to a quick sauce to mm -hmm. accompany something. Um, I think like those are probably the easiest things you could do uh, to be able to make something like that. But you could also make your own demi um, and you can freeze that into like little cubes to make your own sauce, which is kind of cool. Um, I, I love using demi on stuff. Basically what demi is, is going to be your, uh, veal gloss or, uh, reduced, um, 
beef broth. You reduce it so far that uh, because it's really gelatinous, thick, rich sauce, and it just has a really good mouthfeel and an intense flavor. Um, there's one that you could do uh, that's really cool with vegetables. This is a, a veggie demi, where, and it's the easiest one you could do because like a demi is basically a like two-day process if you do it right. And this veggie demi that you can make, you can make it within like three hours. So you roast your vegetables off and you get all kinds of different, uh, you know, uh, umami vegetables like eggplant, um, onion, sweet potato, carrot, those kinds of things. And you uh, roast those off and get them really, really dark golden brown. And then you steep that in water and then you reduce that uh, water down into a thicker sauce. Okay, so you basically cook all your vegetables and then you take everything that's remaining and like all the scraps and tidbits left on the, the baking sheet or whatever it is you use and then you put that in water and you boil that, kind of like making a tea out of it almost? Yeah, you're, you're basically steeping it to get all that uh, flavor out of those vegetables and into that water and then you're going to reduce that down uh, and you can remove the stuff from it. Gotcha. And that winds up being pretty thick? Yeah. Um, you can... Uh, I would say, have you ever seen Demi before? Yeah, but I, I don't have enough of a vocabulary with regard to sauces that I don't even know what I'm eating half the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, uh, it's going to be that like dark brown, uh, like real rich sauce that they usually put on things. Um, and it's a, it's a thicker sauce. Like there's a lot of gelatin involved in it, but um, it's able to hold its shape and body and form. Gotcha. I feel like a lot of people make the mistake of just cooking too hot too fast when it comes to sauces. Like that's the big thing, right? Yeah. So uh, the thing about being like a saucier is, you know, take your time on things. You want to be able to extract everything that you possibly can from the ingredients that are going into that sauce to make the best sauce possible. And that takes time. And uh, like, for instance, uh, you know, like that demi, that's a really good example of a sauce that you know takes a lot of time and um the end result it should be really really good yeah i need to definitely up my sauce game i feel like it makes sense to do that anyways with what i'm trying to do because like when i'm cooking food and i'm trying to get all the macronutrients that i account for in that food if i'm leaving anything on the skillet that's just uncounted macros so to speak so if i can make a sauce out of that then I come out way ahead for it. Yeah, and here's an even quicker sauce, right? So uh, it's a pan sauce. Um, after you get done sauteing something in a pan, reserve uh, what's left in that pan for your sauce. And what you're going to do is uh, you're going to toss a little bit of, uh, you know, I would say wine. You can do a vinegar. You can do water if you want. But uh, wine would be a great uh, addition to something like that. And you just deglaze the pan. And you reduce that down to like an almost syrupy consistency with a little bit of uh, rosemary, thyme, garlic, or shallot. And um, from there, all you have to do is emulsify some butter into it. And you'll have a great pan sauce for like uh, the steak that you just made or the pork chop that you just put in there. I like it. And that doesn't take but just a minute, right? Yeah. I mean... You know, the longest thing that you got to wait around is for your wine to reduce a little bit to the consistency that it's needed. Yeah, so while your steak's resting, you can make a sauce and be good to go. Yep. What about, like, fermented foods and, and like, probiotics and stuff? Like, you ever 
fooling around with making yogurts and stuff like that or no? Yeah, actually, um, I was when I first started out, I was really big into preserving, and I preserved all kinds of things. I was a total noob at it at the start until I was like doing it more in kitchens, and there's a couple of like different techniques I like to use. Like if you're if you want to store something uh, for much longer, you need to be able to have a boiling kettle for something like that, um, because you got to be careful with like diseases and infections that can come with foods that are canned if you don't do it properly um and my like obviously the big one is botulism which takes years to actually develop but um you know uh i was really big into that and i learned a couple of different quick techniques like i call it the quickle instead of uh like a pickling process Mm -hmm. i call it the quick pickle so i combined quickle and i made that and what you do is you just the main syrup that you use would be like equal parts sugar uh or like a cup of sugar and then a cup of vinegar or uh vice versa you know and then you would reduce that down into your consistency and uh make it dissolve and then pour it over the top of whatever you're trying to preserve or pickle and then cover it with something so that it can steep in that and with that, you can have that for like, you know, weeks. It'll stay put for, for a long time. I love the flavor that you get when you have like fermented pickled foods. I just, I wish there was like a, a surefire way to know how many grams of sugar are actually active that you're consuming after all the, the you know, probiotics and, and the, the fermentation process yeah, taking so place. It, it is an interesting idea. Um, the... Vinegar, obviously, in those solutions is the thing that uh, denatures the food. And that's why you see, like, a cucumber can become a pickle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know how much of a nutritional difference is in that. That'd be a good thing to, like, look up and kind of talk about. But um, I, I've actually recently wanted to try out some stuff with, like, xylitol. Because xylitol, all you have to do is bring that sugar up to a boil, and um, it's it's good. And there's not like a whole like nutrition like like a taste that is gonna affect things. You know, you're not gonna have that extra heat on the mouth. Um, it's just a cleaner ingredient, and I think it'd be a kind of a cool addition for like a real pickle instead of just taking vinegar and trying to pour it over something and cure it like that. And you could do the same thing with like a yogurt, I'm assuming, right? Like is is the the bacteria that's in a pickled or fermented food, is it does it have to have that sugar or can it basically feed off of xylitol? Like is that gonna provide it the what it needs to be able to grow? Um, so with that, like if you're if you're trying to really ferment a food, uh you really don't need a lot of sugar because the bacteria will feed off of what sugar is inside of the food. Uh, so like kimchi is a really uh, interesting um, thing to have. And if, if at any point you want to add an addition to ferment it quicker, you can add things like fish sauce that has a lot of fermentation properties inside of it that will help uh, like kickstart the fermentation process. So like whenever you want to ferment something, you want to add in a previous batch of what you were making it from so that uh, it kickstarts the process. And then 
when you do that, you just keep developing the flavor and the flavor of that. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of kimchi for sure. I mean, I'm a fan of all all foods. Like, I don't discriminate. But kimchi, like sauerkraut, all that stuff comes in super handy, especially when my calories are low too because it gives you some volume. It gives you like a pretty punchy flavor and it doesn't require a ton of it and the calories are pretty low. So it's just a good little hunger hack, so to speak. What about desserts, man? I want to I want to touch on I want to end with desserts because we're coming into the holiday seasons here. We got Thanksgiving, Christmas coming up. Everybody's going to be, you know, going off the rails, eating foods they probably shouldn't. What are some good go-to dessert recipes that don't impact your ketone production and uh, doesn't spike your insulin or glucose too much? And I feel like you would be a good person to ask because you're tracking all this with a continual glucose monitor. So, what are some of your go-to desserts? So, um, of course, fat bombs are like a very prominent thing. Like, uh, I'm actually working on a book right now that is going to be a fat bomb based book. Um, it's going to push a lot of the boundaries, but I think that's a great option for people during the holidays. Say you go out with your family and you see them eating all these crazy desserts, but you're able to refrain from that, but then you have this hankering for something. All you got to do is go home and get that fat bomb and eat it and you'll be set, you know? Um, the other thing that's kind of cool is you have uh, mug cakes, you know. Um, those can be made in under a minute or more, you know. Um, I think that's a really quick and unique thing that you can make that will satisfy the sweet tooth for sure. So if you want like a chocolate cake, you can have some of that, you know. Speaking of fat bombs, man, there was some some type of fat bomb that you had me try at the, the neck competition, and it was like an egg base, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I made a creme anglaise and I froze it and it became like that super, super uh, custardy fat bomb that I gave you. And I mean, I got to imagine there's like, I mean, it's egg based. I mean, there's probably a pretty good dose of nutrients that you're getting from that, that a lot of other fat bombs aren't bringing to the table. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that recipe is really simple too. It's just vanilla bean, salt, sweetener, heavy cream, and egg yolks. And you just bring that thing up to its thick consistency and strain that out. And you have something that you can put over the top of your breakfast foods and is keto-friendly, obviously. Um, I mean, you got two of the biggest keto-friendly uh, foods in there, you know. Yeah, heavy cream and egg yolk. It's hard to, hard to beat that. Yeah. What, what sweetener were you using uh, for that one? I, I used uh, erythritol in that one. Erythritol? Do you notice yeah. that erythritol has, uh, like, since I normally use stevia, have you noticed that, you know, erythritol, xylitol, some of the other ones we've talked about are better than stevia from like a, a I'm assuming they're probably better from a baking standpoint. They're more sugar-like in how they respond to cooking, right? Yeah, so, um, so it's funny, erythritol, when you try to boil it or try to make a simple syrup out of it, it's going to crystallize once it cools down. Um, and that happens almost every single time, but there's a way that you can go about making a simple syrup with uh, erythritol is just take like warm water and just put the erythritol inside and just dissolve it in there. And then you have your simple syrup. You don't need to boil it or anything, uh, but it's going to turn into this like kind of like yellow looking mess i guess because mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like a sugar alcohol base and uh, uh like to me it's not the most appealing 
look for a simple syrup, whereas like xylitol, it melts completely uh, when at high temperatures and um, can crystallize if it's not um, has a little bit of xanthan gum in it. But that one isn't the same as like erythritol. Like it's actually used to make candy that is keto, like hard candies, you know, and um, I think that, like, I've been messing with that a little bit, and there's a lot of different things I've done with it. Like, I've made marshmallows with xylitol. Um, I've done a couple of other unique things with it, like some uh, sweet soy sauce. I did a mirin with it, um, and all of those came out ridiculously cool. Uh, the other thing that was really nice was um, with stevia, you know, you have different ways that you can bake with it, uh, given that we have so many different ways to have stevia in like a powdered form or granulated form or um, the liquid drops that you get. I don't prefer using stevia because uh, I think I'm probably allergic to that and it just kind of gives me a headache, you know. But uh, when I eat that, like it's like way too intense, way too sweet. Yeah. And... Um, sometimes leaves a bitter aftertaste in my mouth. Uh, the other thing that's cool with erythritol, though, is when you do bake it and you let it cool down inside, like, say, a cookie, uh, it becomes chewy, which is kind of interesting. Oh, that um, makes sense. Yeah, but, uh, you know, you still get that cooling effect from it, which is interesting. Like, uh, I know people are kind of off-put by that, and it is kind of off-putting, I think, but um, I think that's another cool property of it, though. But uh, yeah, it is pretty then, crazy. You bite into a cookie or something; it's like it's like you just brushed your teeth. Your cold. whole mouth is cold. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the other thing is like allulose, right? So allulose is cool. It's very similar to sugar, um, but not the same kind of glycemic index. So uh, allulose is like a real sugar uh, with like seventy percent fewer calories. And so you can still caramelize stuff with it. You can still uh, make syrups with it. You can still do a unique variety of stuff with it. Like baking with it gives you a nice chewy texture. Um, you can basically do a lot of stuff with that. So like xylitol and allulose right now are kind of hot items. I know you've probably seen allulose is popping up everywhere. Yeah. But with, with like allulose, I find that it's uh, a bit more... Um, like I like to say raisiny, but it's kind of like that, like molasses tasting or uh, maple syrupy taste to it, and you can't really hide that very much. So you got to find applications for it that would make sense. I haven't had it by itself, like plain, but I've had it in you know different products and whatnot. It definitely has more of a like a syrupy, like sticky kind of chewy texture almost. Yeah, and I. I think the I want to make some marshmallows with allulose because I want to be able to toast some marshmallows off for an event, and I think that'd be kind of a cool thing. I did it with the xylitol, but unfortunately, you can hardly caramelize it, mm. and uh, so basically, when you put a torch to it, it just kind of melts. That'd be crazy, man! Like keto-friendly marshmallows, you could have like s'mores if you had a hundred percent dark chocolate, some keto-friendly marshmallows, and then like a I don't like a fathead crust for the for the graham cracker or something, put some cinnamon in there. Yeah, right. That'd be good. That'd be good. Well, shoot, man, you get me hungry. I'm about to go get some food now.
<laughs> yeah, talking food, man, is, is awesome, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's get, got my mouth watering. Um, where can people go to find out more about you, man? Follow along, learn how to cook a thing or two. Yeah, so uh, you can find me at Keto Chef Max on Instagram um, or my website, ketochefmax.com. Uh, you can find my the incredible edible egg book that is out now. Uh, it's on sale right now for fifteen dollars when you use egg twenty five um, as a code. And then uh, my social media on Facebook is Keto Chef Max as well. The incredible edible eggs that all about different egg recipes. Yep, there's something like twenty eight recipes in there of just eggs. Nice, nice. So that'd be good for someone yeah, to do an egg fast or a, something a whole like bunch that. Of, yeah, yeah. There's just like tons of different ways to use eggs in that thing. I love it. I love it. Well, I like what you're doing, man. Like, I like your approach to cooking. I feel like your talent. There's so many different keto chefs out there. So many different keto cooks, and I feel like the more there are, that's great. Obviously, it means more people are learning about keto. You got more people spreading the word. But I feel like there's there's starting to get to the point where there's just like so much repetition in some of these recipes. So it's cool for me to see someone like you bringing something new to the table. With a new flair, a new style, new flavor, and it, I don't know, it, it adds a lot more energy, I think. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I think, my unique trait in my little niche that I got, you know? I like it, man. Well, keep doing what you're doing, keep spreading the word, and uh, keep cooking some awesome food, man. All right, thanks, Robert. You bet, brother.